Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode one of our series for 2015. Like we're back, aren't we, Leon? That's right, and it's great to be back too. Indeed it is. And uh, today's date, as you probably know, and for your record, is the 6th of February 2015. So what have we got on this week, Leon? Gary, we have a terrific interview today with Anne-Marie Huby, who is talking about her work setting up the social giving platform Just Giving. And uh, it's based overseas, but she's going to be talking to us how, how Just Giving works and all about charity and philanthropy. We spoke to Anne-Marie on a rather flaky Skype connection. The sound quality isn't quite what we'd like, but we hope you enjoy the interview. Philanthropy is not huge on the agenda of Australian businesses, and uh, Anne-Marie is uh, doing something to spur it along. That's right. And then we have a terrific chat with RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson about how all the political upheaval in Canberra is going to affect reform. It doesn't look like there's going to be much reform. No. So anyway, let's now chat with Anne-Marie Huby. Anne-Marie Huby is the Managing Director and Co-Founder of Just Giving, which is an online giving website, which is unusual in this uh, materialistic world, I guess. Um, it's a pioneer of the for-profit, for-good movement. Anne-Marie, you're visiting Australia. What's the purpose here? Well, we've been, um, we've been serving donors fundraisers around the world for, uh, for 14 years now, um, and we, we opened up uh, our, our services to local charities and, and, and companies and event partners in Australia over a year. So I thought a, a visit was long overdue to really um, understand how we can serve them better. Have you got an office here in Australia? Yes, we've got a team of three people here in Australia supporting and and, uh, and developing our partnership in the country. Because while we have 10 million uh, users, givers and fundraisers around the world, it's very important our, our, our service only really works uh, if it benefits local charities and, and local event organizers and companies. So it's very important that we, we should be here. We're a virtual product by all accounts, uh, but human relationships do matter. I mean, you've got something like 12,000 charities there uh, with you. I mean, how does it all work? I mean, how do you keep them all going? Well, the, our vision has always been that the internet, uh, you know, would, what will our... Let me rephrase that. When we created Just Giving, our vision was very much to create a platform that would enable people to, who care about a cause to find one easily and, and to be able to support them uh, very simply. So, and conversely, you know, our promise um, to, to good causes around the world is we should not only help them to help uh, to, to, to capture funds online, but also connect them more proactively with people who are most likely to care about them. Um, so the, the way that the platform works is very simple. If you are somebody who cares about something, whether it's nature conservation or, or cancer research, you can come to Just Giving and you can either uh, set up the fundraising page, which uh, is for example, you might want to give up birthday presents and collect donations instead, or you are running a marathon and you think that you might as well ask your friends to support. Uh, you can do that in a few clicks, and then people can donate to your to your fundraising page. 
And that's really incredibly helpful to charities at the other end of the scale because it used to be, you know, not, uh, it used to be very hard for charities to receive money, uh, virtually online. You know, charities don't have the, the, the means to create their own technologies. That's expensive and it's risky. So what we've created is a really social platform, an enjoyable platform that people, ordinary people love to use. And that enables charities to raise extraordinary amounts of money without any risk and in a very secure fashion. So how many fundraising pages would you have created? This year, we will have about a million uh, fundraising pages on the on the website this year alone. Do, do corporates donate or does it come back through uh, small outfits, individuals, clubs and things like that? It's all people-powered fundraising, really, as we like to call it. Um, people uh, set up pages, they tell their friends, uh, and then they, uh, the, the Just Giving platform, the, the magic, really, of the Just Giving platform is that not only are they able to reach their friends very easily, so their first circle of people they know, but the platform is very intelligently able to connect, to, to, to spread their story further. And we do that in a number of ways. Um, we, we make it easy, as I said, for them to share their story by email, of course, or fashioned um, now, but, but most, most importantly via social media. And because we work so closely with Facebook, uh, among others, um, we, are, uh, we are able to really optimize the, the way their services, the stories are surfaced on Facebook. To give you a sense of the scale, this year alone, uh, the Just Giving Appeals stories, you know, people with fundraisers and charities appealing uh, on this giving, um, those stories have reached uh, 1.2 billion people on the, the platform. There have been 1.2 billion page impressions on Facebook uh, through just giving alone this year. And that gives you a sense of, and, and that at the, in an individual page level means that if you create a fundraising page on just giving, on average, it will be seen 1.4 thousand times on Facebook. And that sounds, you know, sort of easy to achieve, but actually it, it requires a lot of attention to detail. You know, we might think about how, uh, how to optimize every opportunity for people to share, uh, you know, the fact that they have posted a page, but also the, the updates to their page, the, the moment that they choose to donate, and the, the, the moment that they choose to care about something on just giving. All of these things really, really add up. So in short, charities choose just giving because they know that their stories will travel further and uh, that they will also receive the, the funds uh, more easily and more securely than ever before. Amory, uh, in the unlikely event I was going to run a marathon and get my friends to support me, um, and I raise, say, a couple of thousand dollars, how do I get it to Just Giving? Is there an online payments gateway, or how does that work? So our, our, our technology stack is a payment gateway. So, so, so we are a payment uh, platform with uh, a wealth of, of sharing and social tools attached to it, if you like. So the way it works is that when you, when you donate to Just Giving, very practically, uh, so you set up a page. You don't have to run marathons, by the way. You can also do some very unheroic things. They work just as well. Um, you can create a page, invite your friends to donate to it. We then, just giving processes these donations, the beauty of it is that we do so in eight currencies. So whether you have friends in Australia, great, but the chances are you have friends all over the world and they can donate at no, no extra cost to them, so there are no punitive charges. And then we, we process those donations, translate them into... And we pay them, uh, you know, on a regular basis. And that means 
that the charity doesn't have to you know, create its own technology stack, worry about the complexities of handling with, uh, you know, uh, card um, security, etc., on their platform. We do that for them from end to end so that they can concentrate on their mission. So, I mean, this crowdfunding charities, do you see that as the future of philanthropy? It, I see it as a, a sort of evolution. Um, we were the pioneers in peer-to-peer fundraising, so what I described a moment ago, which is the ability to ask your friends to support an individual effort. And I think crowdfunding is just a, a, another another step on that continuum. I think charities are waking up to the power of being able to to really show very clearly where funds are going. But what I think has, is really attracting public to crowdfunding is the tangibility of the effect. You know, whether it is a you know a creative project on Kickstarter or a project on Just Giving, it is the tangibility of knowing where your twenty dollar, your hundred dollar donation is going and I think charities that that is going to change charity I believe for the better because um, there's nothing more rewarding for a donor than to know that their donation has achieved something that they can put their finger on and I think that's why crowdfunding opens up so many opportunities for, for people so it, de facto just giving is already a crowdfunding um, platform we've enabled peer-to-peer funding of good causes for years, what I think we are noticing is an appetite for project funding. So in other words, we hear fundraisers saying, I'd like to create a page for that particular purpose, whether it's that particular pool in Uganda or that particular wing of the hospital in Australia, something very close to people's heart. And conversely, uh, and, and, and likewise, the donors love knowing that the cause that they're that their friend is championing is very tangible. And so I see a great, great deal of uh, of potential in that area in years to come and will definitely be at the forefront of it. That raises the point of the Ebola uh, epidemic in, in Africa and it seems to be spreading elsewhere. And I know that you were uh, involved with the uh, Doctors Without Borders uh, organization. Is it benefiting from from Just Giving? Well, unfortunately, the Ebola epidemic, I mean, here I'm talking as a non-just, in a non-just living capacity, but the Ebola epidemic has received very little fundraising attention internationally. I mean, possibly for, in part, for for good reasons. Um, The the organizations involved and Médecins Sans Frontières, among them, Doctors Without Borders, are rightly pointing out that the magnitude of the problem warrants a much more concerted intergovernmental response. It's not just a matter for charities, and I think they're right to point that out. But at a personal level, and with a sort of former MSF hat on, uh, I'm personally quite dismayed by the lack of spontaneous uh, fundraising response there has been after all. You know, regardless of the politics and the complexities of it, this is a human tragedy of extraordinary proportions. And I've I've been personally quite saddened to see how little fundraising, um, you know, there has actually been. That may change, I think, um, as the international response ramps up and putting my just giving back hat back on. Uh, very much hope um, more fundraising activity in aid of Ebola victims and in support of the sort of really brave aid workers who are helping them out there. So, you know, that's probably yet to come. Hey, Marie, uh, we're out of time, but I do thank you. And uh, uh, Leon and I wish you very well in uh, your further uh, progress. Thank you so much, Gary. 
Well, as I was saying, Leon, uh, Australian corporates aren't really up top of the heap in uh, philanthropy, although people like Twiggy Twiggy Forrest at uh, Fortescue do quite a bit of it. That's right, that's right. And so uh, now uh, Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, with the prospect of a change in leadership of the Liberal Party, a new Prime Minister, we're going to get a new Treasurer as a result, a whole new team at the front. What does that mean for the big issues like tax reform, industrial relations, the Federation? I think that what it should mean is full steam ahead because there are a lot of issues that do need to be addressed. Tax reform is very important. IR reform is very important. Dealing with our fiscal imbalance at the federal level is all very important. I have to say, unfortunately, given the the history of how these things work out, I actually think all of these things are going to be a lot more, um, a more cautious approach is going to be taken when addressing all of these issues, which, of course, I think would be a mistake. Uh, we do need to have reforms in these areas, and we do need to say to ourselves that um, our politicians are put in office to do things, not to simply maintain their majorities, or at least attempt to maintain their majority. But, I mean, this is a lesson that's coming out of Queensland. It's also coming out of Greece as well, and Victoria to an extent. It is, it is. I I think um, politicians are on the nose more or less all across Australia. Certainly they are uh, incumbent governments are certainly on notice. I think, though, the issue isn't really that people are, are, are opposed to reform per se. I think it is that people are opposed to arrogance. People are opposed to simply being told things, not taken along. So uh, we hear a lot of talk about um, uh, communication problems. We do actually have governments that are talking to the electorate rather than talking with the electorate. And if people don't understand what you're doing and they don't like it, they're going to toss you out. And to be quite honest, that, that, that's not such a bad thing. To, to, to toss out a government when you are unhappy um, sends a very clear message because bear in mind, elections come along on a regular basis you know, every three or four years. And uh, that gives politicians a uh, time to reflect. And of course, it also puts pressure on the Labour Party to come out with its own very clear philosophy and pol- political very, very much so because um, they are in office now here in, in Victoria and uh, I suspect very much that they'll be in office in Queensland and they'll be facing elections sooner rather than later as well. So the, 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 the pressure is on to perform and uh, I, I actually think that that is a good thing because bearing in mind these challenges are going to be affecting them too. Um, here in Victoria, for example, um, the, the issue about breaking contracts and sovereign risk, that is very much on the mind of the government and I think they are finding it's going to be a lot harder to, 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 to wiggle out of the contract than they thought they would. They're up for a compensation bill of $1.2 billion. Uh, they're up for another compensation bill of about half a billion dollars for the decision to scrap the tax, the, sorry, the uh, contract on um, poker machines during the last Labor government, and they'll probably have to end up paying the federal government back another half a billion dollars. So they're $2 billion in the hole already, and they haven't done anything. So he's going to be having to think very carefully about spending priorities, what he really wants to do, and he'll be facing an election in four years' time. Politicians are going to have to start being humble, and I think they're going to have to start actually being a lot more careful about spending taxation promises that they make while in opposition because the electorate are taking a very hardline view on what they perceive to be dishonesty. So if... 
issues like tax reform are so important and everyone feels that, how should the government go about that process? Well, I would start off by being far more disciplined. If you had a look at uh, the last few weeks, we've had a whole bunch of backbenchers more or less coming out talking about changing the GST. Now, if we think about the GST here in Australia, I think we've probably fought three or four GST elections before we settled on the GST that we've got. And everybody was very happy. We brought in a GST at 10%, very hard to change. And the GST was specifically brought into finance state government taxation, which was very inefficient. In the last few weeks, we've had all this talk about raising the rate or increasing the base and what have you, but we've had no talk about what this will be replacing. So simply the electorate were told, we are gonna slug you for more money. And the electorate are unhappy about that. I mean, we don't pay money over to the government because we love them dearly. We pay money over to the government because we are getting in return public goods and services. But there was never never any explanation about why it was necessary, was there? No, no, there wasn't. There was simply, oh, we're going to tax you more money because it's, it's, it's less distortionary. And people say, well, I don't care about that. Or somehow we're going to tax you more money because it's unfair on domestic retailers when everybody who buys online knows that prices online are much more than 10% lower than they are in the stores. So... People know a nonsense argument when they hear it. They know a, a, a tax grab. They see it when they see it. So I actually think discipline, um, a, a, a more considered approach, you start off by saying here are a range of options. Um, people still talk about um, some taxes which Dr. Hewson said he was going to abolish when he brought in a GST, and they say, oh, they haven't been abolished. And you say, no, 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 that was a different tax plan. So people are very much in the mindset there are trade-offs when it comes to increasing the GST, which we haven't seen the discussion recently. So that obviously annoys people. So I would actually have a very disciplined approach, not have thought bubbles in, in, in public, because the other thing that's been happening over the last few years is that we've seen a lot more executive government action, where governments announce policies that they then implement and then only later get parliamentary approval for them. So what is happening now, when a government says announces something, people very often think this is coming in, you know, and they haven't been consulted and they haven't heard of, you know, this is the first they've heard about it. So again, it's, it's, it's an inability to, to explain to people what's happening, what's going on, a very much a top-down approach people don't like. I think a more inclusive approach, starting off with explaining why we actually need to have tax reform and why we need to address the fiscal imbalances um, at the federal level. I mean, it, it is astonishing that the states spend most of the money on health, education, policing services, but they really have to scrabble for money. What's the likelihood of a government coming out with a more considered approach, given their, their track record so far? Um, given their track record so far, probably not very good. I think it all depends upon what happens in the next few weeks. I, I would actually say right now we are probably back into election mode. Now, I, I know that sounds very silly because we're only halfway through a, uh, um, a term of government, but much like we were during the minority government era of, of Ms. Gillard and then Mr. Rudd, we are more or less back into that mode because nobody's quite sure what's going to happen on the political front. And that means that business are going to be reluctant to invest. They're going to be reluctant to employ. They're going to be reluctant to make any major decisions because they don't know what's happening. In order to actually stymie that entire economic draining mindset is I would say to the government you need to make a very clear choice about the leadership 
today or tomorrow or sooner rather than later. I don't wait until Easter. Do it now. Um, and that probably means replacing the Prime Minister and at least the Treasurer, if not others, um, with another team. And that other team needs to be humble and contrite and immediately get down to doing some serious work um, to reassure the community that at least we have a government that's actually concerned about the economy and the electorate's interests and not concerned about their own interests. Because that's what we saw during the minority government era. It, was, it wasn't a pretty sight. The economy certainly suffered. We know we have to have IR reform. We know we have to have tax reform. We know we have to deal with federation. These are pressing issues, and we shouldn't have to wait while our friends in Canberra sort themselves out. The, the question then is, who's going to accept the Liberal Party's poison chalice? <laughs> well, the um, I'm, I actually like following the betting markets in in, in this area. Although uh, I have to say the betting market was was spectacularly wrong on on Saturday night. Um, but the the betting markets seem to be suggesting that either Julie Bishop or Malcolm Turnbull are in the power, uh, prime seats. Uh, uh, Scott Morrison seems to be in the mix there as well. I, I think he's probably a bit inexperienced. Both uh, Julie Bishop and Malcolm Turnbull come with uh, baggage. Um, they've been uh, uh, in, in these sorts of positions before. Uh, Miss Bishop was the shadow uh, treasurer for a while and didn't perform at all well. Malcolm Turnbull was the opposition leader for a while and also didn't perform well. So you've got to hope that they've learned from their experiences there a bit wiser and older now than what they were before but that's certainly the 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 if you want to put in scare quotes the dream team that that, that i've been hearing about over the last few days well the word i heard was you would have malcolm turnbull as prime minister julie bishop as deputy and scott morrison as treasurer that is one of the stories i've heard too I I have to say, Mr. Morrison's only been in the cabinet for a very short period of time. So it's in, and for whatever you think about the policy of of turning back the boats, he was successful in doing that. So uh, he does have a record of success, but in a completely unrelated area to either spending or or economics. So. He could either be very good or very terrible. I'm not quite sure. Um, I think his demeanour probably when dealing with turning back the boat suggests that he wouldn't be as open and consultative as perhaps he could be, but that might have been part of the job. I mean, you, you can't be sure till they get in there. I would be looking at one of the younger breeds of, 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 of liberals, so either a Steve Chibo or, or a Josh Frydenberg, one of those guys who, who've been assistant treasurer. I would put them into the role and, and see how they go. Uh, they would be complete clear skins. They're both very highly talented individuals. People might say they're a bit young, but so what? You know, I, I would put one of those guys in, or even Christian Porter, um, who's actually been treasurer of Western Australia. I mean, this is a man who's actually got experience in the job. So there, there is talent to be put in. Certainly, I wouldn't be looking at, at Mr. Morrison simply because of we, we, he's, an, he's such an unknown uh, very popular with the Liberal base, but he's such an unknown. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, Bishop and, and, and Mr. Turnbull are, are unknown factors, but you've got to hope that they've sort of stepped up. I mean, you know, in the very end, John Howard had been through all sorts of trials and tribulations and ended up being a pretty good prime minister. So we could see that same process going on. But 
the, the, the lesson from, from the Victorian last election, of course, is that if you've got a leader that you think should be replaced, you should replace them sooner rather than later, simply because you've got to give them time and breathing space to get going. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, what do you reckon? Sinclair's really on form, isn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, the issue, as Sinclair says, is you know we need tax reform very badly. We have to sort out the issues with the states and federation as well. And right at this moment, um, we've got a headless chook in Canberra pretty well, and uh, it may be some time before those reforms come through. Well, yes, yes, yes. Well, Sinclair certainly gave us something to think about. He did indeed. And now the news. So, Leon? Well, first of all, Gary, activity in China's manufacturing sector lifted, but only slightly for the first time since October. It's still pretty weak. The HSBC China manufacturing PMI for January rose fractionally to 49.7. That's up from 49.6 in December. You know, it's still below 50, and at the same time, activity in China's services sector has continued to weaken, and it's now at a six-month low. And the HSB Market Services Purchasing Managers Index, PMI, fell to 51.8 points in January. That's down from 53.4 in December, which is why the uh, Chinese government is going to look at uh, making the banks, uh, easing monetary policy for the banks to lend out more money. That that has in previous times given China some problems. That's right. And uh, to Europe and the economist turned finance minister seeking to renegotiate Greece's huge debt obligations said his priority is the well-being of all Europeans and is ruled out accepting more bailout cash. And after talks with his French counterpart, the Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis says a new deal debt deal is needed within months. And Michael Sapin of France says France is ready to help Greece settle with its creditors. Now, Greece's leftist anti-austerity Syriza party won the election last month with a pledge to write off half the debt. Now, Greece has still a debt of 315 billion euro. That's about 175% of GDP. And despite some creditors writing down debts in a renegotiation in 2012, And so Varoufakis is travelling around to London, Rome for more talks and his comments follow remarks on Saturday by the new Greek PM Alexis Tsipras who said he was confident Greece could reach a deal with creditors. Now German Chancellor Angela Merkel has ruled out debt cancellation. She says creditors have already made concessions. Now Greece will repay a deal soon with the euro area nations that funded most of the country's financial rescue and Tsipras said that in a statement. And also the European Commission says the controversial EU IMF Troika, which supervises Greece's finances, could be replaced. Now, the Troika is a group of auditors representing the Commission, the European Central Bank and the IMF, and they carry out regular checks to see if Greece is sticking to its commitments under the bailout agreement. And Greece's new left-wing government does not accept the Troika's agenda. Instead, it wants to renegotiate the bailout to get a huge reduction in Greece's debt. Commission Chief Spokesman Margareta Sheenis quoted a pledge by Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker to replace the Troika. So they're moving somewhere, Gary, and I think they're quite optimistic about getting a deal. They all want to protect Europe because if if you got a Mediterranean spin-off, then you'd have a Northern European Europe. That's right. Actually, I think so, in some respects it might be a bad idea, but um, that wouldn't do much good for the Mediterranean countries. Well, Syriza well, is uh, quite intent on striking a deal and they're quite optimistic about it, Gary. 
It's a lot of money if they want to have that uh, debt. Burden. Certainly is. Certainly. Although, you know, that can be renegotiated in terms of payments. Uh, now, the pace of growth in the U.S. manufacturing sector slowed in January, more than expected, according to the Institute for Supply Management, and its index of national factory activity fell to 53.5. That's down from 55.1 the month before. U.S. consumer spending also fell, uh, a sign of caution among American households, despite lower gasoline prices, steady hiring. And personal spending, which measures outlays for everything from hardware to healthcare, decreases seasonally just at 0.3%. So the American economy is um, not going that well at the moment, Gary. No, but it's doing a lot better than anywhere else, including us. Uh, well, let me tell you, Gary, the National Australia Bank's quarterly business survey indicates that we have a two-speed patchwork economy where the construction services industries benefit from low interest rates, while commodity-dependent companies lag. NAB said business conditions were broadly unchanged, remaining at a positive four index points. Business confidence fell four points to a reading of positive two index points. That's well below the long-run average level of five points. And a survey of more than 2,000 businesses by industry group ACCI found business confidence fell for the third straight quarter in December and business expectations for their own conditions in the March quarter also fell. ABS data showed the number of buildings approved declined seasonally just as 3.3% in January to 17,753 in December. But, on the other hand, activity in the service sector grew 2.4 points in January to 49.49, which is just below the 50 level that separates expansion from contraction. And that's good. Lower petrol prices, though, aren't doing much to stoke consumer confidence. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index fell 0.7% to 112.5 last week. That's the second consecutive decline in the weekly index. And so, Gary, they're not good figures. There's just a lack of confidence. People are very cautious about money. Uh, jobs are still tough to find. We've still got a huge youth unemployment figure around the place. So, you know, small wonder that families may be looking at, at a post-teenage son without a job are pretty gloomy. That's right. And inflation's picked up despite the continued rise in slide in petrol prices. Inflation rose 0.1% in January for an annual rate of 1.5%, according to the TD Securities Melbourne Institute monthly inflation gauge. But the underlying inflation measure, which strips out volatile price movements, and that's the one watched by the RBA, rose 0.3% in January. That's an annual rate of 2.3%. That still sits within the central bank's 2 to 3% target band. And after weeks of speculation, the RBA followed through with a 0.25 percentage point rate cut. And that's brought the rate cash rate to a record low of 2.25%. And that's responded to growing market pressure for to ease monetary policy. And it's the first time the rate's changed in 18 months since August 2013, Gary. Yes, and the Australian dollar, as you say, went down to 77 cents. It's basically back up a cent today. That's right, yeah. So uh, that's, that's what's happening. Now, the other interesting piece of news, Gary, is that in his address to the National Press Club, Tony Abbott dumped his signature paid parental leave scheme in favour of what he says is a better childcare and families package. And he told the press club the new package would make childcare more affordable and ease less pressure on the family budget. But he didn't give any details, Gary. No, because I don't think he's thought it through. 
Now, well, so childcare now has become the big issue to show how the new improved consultative government will work, but there's no detail on even the basics of how the government intends to proceed, and it isn't clear how it's going to fund this initiative. Remember, the paid parental leave scheme was going to replace was going to be funded by living on big business, which has now been dumped, and the scheme would have paid new mothers 26 weeks actual wage capped at $100,000. That was widely criticised by government MPs, business and hostile senators as being too generous amidst a tough budget. And now, Gary, the Business Council of Australia, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry, the Australian Industry Group and the Australian Mines and Metals Association want the government to dump the levy now that the scheme it's paid for is gone and the government isn't dumping it. They haven't got the revenue. What are they going to do? That's right. Now to the corporate world, Gary, and there's some interesting movement with Westfield and it's in the sights of a French shopping centre giant, Unibail Redumco, which is looking to expand its business into the US. Now, Westfield has been mooted as a potential takeover target for other large mall owners after the group completed a huge restructure in June in which its entire Australian operations were spun off into a new entity centre. Now, Westfield, in which billionaire founder Frank Lowe and his family hold 9.5%, they own and manage $27.7 billion US, that's about 35.6 billion Aussie, of 40 malls in the US and Britain, as well as a development pipeline that includes a project in Milan that promises to be Europe's second biggest retail centre and the World Trade Centre Mall in New York. The Netherlands' uh, Unibel Rodamco, formed through the merger of France's Unibel and Dutch mall owner Rodamco, is running the numbers on the Australian-listed mall owner. And, of course, um, isn't Westfield in, in a deal with... Um uh, an American equity company That's as well, right. isn't well, it? Well, it sold uh, three US regional shopping centres to O'Connor Capital Partners for $925 million. And O'Connor's taken a 47.4% in each of the Palm Desert Mall in California, Trumbull Mall in Connecticut, and Wheaton Mall in Maryland. And the final bit of news, Gary, is about Foxtel. And it's ignited a new battle for the nation's 112.5 million internet subscribers, and it's unveiling long-awaited broadband plans with an intention to greatly expand its pay TV operation. Now, until now, Foxtel, which is 50% owned by Telstra, 50% by News Corp, has not been an active player in the ultra-competitive fixed-line broadband market and prefers to allow Telstra to bundle its pay TV services with phone and internet connection to sell to consumers. But with the arrival of Foxtel on broadband, it's positioning itself to become Australia's leading supply of internet services, and it will... Bro- bundle broadband with pay TV services and fixed line telephony and that will mirror the success of Britain's B-Sky-B and boost subscribers and profits. And the release of Foxtel Broadband is a final piece of a strategy from Foxtel to reinvigorate its subscriber base. It will boost pay TV penetration and defend against the incoming threat of subscription video giant Netflix. And that's going to position the company to win market share in a broadband market dominated by Telstra, Optus, iNet and TPG. I mean, the NBN's all very well, but, um, you know, is, is Foxtel going to haul cable? What are they going to do? Are they going to rent channels off NBN, maybe? It will pave the way for its entry into the NBN, where quality and quantity of TV and movie content is going to be a big differentiator in the right race to sign up internet members, internet subscribers. And look, the telcos hold 95% of Australia's broadband market, but Foxtel's big advantage is its 2.6 million, million customer base. Exactly right, and it would make sense for certainly uh, Malcolm Turnbull's um, administration of communications to um, bring Foxtel in. 
And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's good. And uh, we'll be back next week. That's right. We'll be back next week with a terrific interview with Rob Icefield uh, from the US from CatShot, which is a company that advises companies. Yep, that's right. And he uses the philosophy learned from being a top gun in a fighter plane. That's right, because that was his own background. And uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-I-Z-Z, or on Facebook. And we look forward to talking to you next week.